Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. World leaders meet for a week and wrestle with the issue of global climate change, many warning that the time for action is running out. I speak for Bangladesh and many others who are on the threshold of a climatic Armageddon. Climate change is fundamentally altering our lives. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. China and the U.S., the world's largest producers, refuse to alter their positions on curbing greenhouse gases. Also, billions of barrels of oil or millions of birds. The government wants your opinion on drilling in one of the most sensitive regions of Alaska. As soon as an oil company gets a green light, it's not like it takes them 10 years to develop an area. It's done within a year or two, and that area, as far as wilderness goes, is pretty much lost forever. A former oil consultant now sides with his fine-feathered friends. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. They called it Climate Week. From the White House to the United Nations, world leaders met and wrestled with the issue of global warming, asking what's the best way to curb greenhouse gas emissions and what it will take to get the world's biggest emitters, China and the United States, to do more to avoid dangerous warming. President Bush and U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon hosted separate climate events just days apart with an eye toward the next major global conference on climate change in Bali in December. But while most of the world's leaders agree that climate change is a serious problem, they're still sharply divided on what to do about it. Living on Earth, Jeff Young followed the climate action in New York and Washington, which is where he is right now. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bruce. Busy week on the climate front. Um, but mm-hmm. did they make any progress? Ah, well, um, the U.N. event drew more than 80 heads of state, which shows they take this seriously. Uh, the White House event, if nothing else, it got uh, China and the U.S. talking, and there are hopes that they'll keep talking. And at the next talks, maybe there will be a breakthrough, and that would be in Bali. That's because countries' commitments to cut CO2 under the Kyoto Protocol last only to, what, 2012, right? That doesn't leave much time, Jeff. That's right. And don't forget, uh, Kyoto also did not place limits on the emissions from the bigger developing countries like India and China. And don't forget, the U.S. never ratified Kyoto. And add to that uh, the growing scientific evidence of how rapidly the planet is warming. All of a sudden, you see why Bali is so important. Uh, People feel they need to get the biggest countries on board and they need to do it fast. So they're still at a bit of a deadlock then, huh? Pretty much, yeah. But is the picture more complex than that? Uh, Did it seem to you that the warnings from the scientific community are getting through to the political leaders? I think the tone of the comments, especially what we heard at the U.N. event, show a much greater sense of urgency about this. Quick example. A couple years ago, uh, we had a story on Living on Earth about Bangladesh and how serious the threat from global warming is there. But a reporter working on that could not find a Bangladeshi official to go on record and talk about how serious it was. Well, that's changed. Uh, here's what the Bangladeshi government leader, Fakhruddin Ahmed, is saying now. I speak for Bangladesh and many others who are on the threshold of a climatic Armageddon. 
Climate change is fundamentally altering our lives. By some estimates, a one-meter sea level rise will submerge about one-third of the total area of Bangladesh, thereby uprooting 25 to 30 million people. We cannot afford to remain idle until this misfortune actually unfolds. Waiting any longer will be at our own peril. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. The arid parts of Africa, the small islands, all the less developed nations say they face the greatest threats from climate change and can least afford to deal with them. They want help to adapt to rising seas and drought, and they demand that rich nations, especially the U.S., commit to further cuts in greenhouse gases. Mm. But, Jeff, uh, the United States opposes mandatory caps. That's right. So uh, U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, when she spoke at the U.N., emphasized the role of new energy technology. Ultimately, we must develop and bring to market new energy technologies that transcend the current system of fossil fuels, carbon emissions, and economic activity. Put simply, the world needs a technological revolution. Rice plays up the $18 billion the U.S. has spent on clean energy under the Bush administration, and she cautions that taking rash action to curb greenhouse gases carries the risk of holding back poor countries. And especially for the millions of men, women, and children in the developing world whose efforts to escape poverty require broad and sustained economic growth and the energy to fuel it. So while Rice said the U.S. is looking to expand its leadership here, it does not look like that means they're willing to take on any sort of binding commitments. And yet it's binding commitments that are exactly what most of the world and environmental groups are, are, are saying we need. That's right. So when uh, the president hosted his meeting on climate, uh, environmental groups made sure they were heard loud and clear. This meeting George Bush is holding on global warming is a fraud. It's designed to prevent any action to stop global warming. So, Jeff, where are we right now? Well, that was at the entrance to the U.S. State Department here in Washington as the climate conference was getting started. Had members of Greenpeace out there protesting. They say the Bush administration is trying to derail the international efforts on climate change. And up on Capitol Hill, there was more criticism from Democrats who are pushing for a climate bill. Washington State Representative Jay Inslee accused Secretary Rice of using the development needs of poor countries as basically an excuse for inaction. You know, that is one of the vilest canards there is when talking about global warming. Tell the secretary to go to Bangladesh and talk to the millions of people whose land will be underwater. Tell her to go to the Sudan where we have huge conflict in part because we have increased desertification. The no-action option is economic disaster for the developing nations. Maybe we'll be able to rebuild the shoreline of Manhattan. The developing nations are not going to rebuild the shorelines of Bangladesh. The vilest of canards. Boy, what was the reaction from other countries that took part in the meeting, Jeff? Well, European leaders uh, had some applause for the president's effort to reach out here, but they remain very skeptical about the administration's voluntary approach to reducing emissions. Danish environment minister Connie Hedegaard argues that it's not enough to just do the research and development. If you want clean energy, she says, you have to create a market for it. And she says the way to do that is a mandate that will put a price on those carbon emissions. You cannot just have voluntary goals. You have to have targets, 
because we are getting a bit impatient, not on our own behalf, but on behalf of the planet, because things have to move with a greater speed. That is what science tells us. And I, I found the politics at work here interesting. The Europeans were clearly trying every angle to press their point. They, they didn't just go to the president's event. They also made very public visits to Congress, where, of course, Democratic leaders are pushing for mandatory caps on carbon emissions. And some of the European officials I spoke with say that gives them leverage when they go to, to talk with the White House about climate. And also, Bruce, I got a sense that a lot of the global community is already looking past the Bush administration. They're hoping they'll have better luck on this issue with the next person who occupies the White House after the elections. But what about China? Uh, I mean, they're growing like crazy, and depending on who's counting emissions, China already has or is soon going to pass the United States as the biggest source of mm-hmm. CO2. Um, did you learn anything about where the Chinese see themselves fitting into all this? Well, you know, of course, uh, China and the U.S. has been at a sort of stalemate on this. Neither wants to jeopardize their competitive advantage by, you know, limiting the energy they might consume or raising the cost of manufacturing. So it's kind of like I see two people standing at an open door and they're each saying to the other, oh, no, after you. And this (laughs) has been going on for, what, 10 years? Uh, However, uh, Chinese officials I heard this week say they know that climate change is a serious threat and they insist they are doing things about it. It's just in their own way. Uh, Xia Jinhua is China's vice chair for national development. I heard him at an event where he talked about uh, reforestation and energy efficiency and even family planning as a way to, to cut CO2. We have avoided the birth of more than 300 million people, which is equivalent to the avoidance of CO2 emissions by 1.3 billion times we are trying our best efforts to integrate uh, policy uh, on climate change. So I heard the Chinese saying they're, they're willing to do more, but their bottom line does not appear to have moved. And that bottom line is the U.S. and the other developed nations created most of this problem. Therefore, they're the ones who need to take most of the action. So the ball is still uh, firmly in the United States court. All eyes are still on the U.S. It's clear that without leadership from the world's richest country, the world's biggest historic greenhouse gas polluter, there's little chance of bringing the other major polluters on board. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. You're welcome. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reporting on Climate Week events in New York and Washington, D.C. Time now to hear from you, our listeners. We got an earful about our recent commentary from Gernot Wagner, who made the case that energy independence for the United States is not only unachievable, but undesirable. Wes Tater, who listens to LOE on New Hampshire Public Radio, emailed to say, I thought your speaker was right on. But Kat Givens from Portage Lakes, Ohio, sent us a resounding yes to energy independence, She tunes in to WKSU and writes, The war on terror would be a thing of the past if we close down our dependence on oil and use the energy resources already available to us, like ethanol, solar, wind, and battery-powered cars. There are green alternatives we can utilize right now. 
Then we got this phone call. What about the long-forgotten word conservation? Diane Crane listens to us in western Massachusetts. This country is very spoiled and very wasteful. I mean, you know, I see it on the road with gasoline, for instance. People aren't going 65 miles an hour down the highway. They're going 75, 85, and I wager some are even going 90 miles an hour. Why aren't they going 55? Maybe people in a hurry just don't give a hoot. Our story about barn owls as roadkill prompted Leslie from Hatboro, PA, to write that she's noticed something odd lately. Hawks sit in trees near the highways. She says, it dawned on me these birds are waiting to grab fresh roadkill. How ingenious. Did individual birds invent a new way of hunting all on their own, or is this a species-wide change of behavior? We got another question, this one from Julie Marie Ford, in response to our story by our Washington correspondent, Jeff Young, in which he compared his use of water to that of a woman in rural India. Ms. Ford asks, has anyone thought to market a bottled water where all of the proceeds go directly to programs to fund water stations in third world countries? This would have a direct effect on helping other people and change the world. What do you think? Let us know your thoughts about what you hear on Living on Earth. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, that's comments at LOE.org. Or put a stamp on it and send it to 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And as always, our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Coming up... Why the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Wabbit wikes. Back in 1907, wabbits, uh, rabbits, were invading Western Australia. The government decided the bunnies had to go. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit? Instead of killing the rabbits, Australia decided to build a bunny fence 2,000 miles long to keep the rabbits out of the outback. The fence didn't work, but scientists began noticing something strange. On the side of the fence where farmers planted crops, there were fewer clouds, and it rained a lot less than the side that had native vegetation. The effect the bunny fence had on weather has baffled researchers until now. Uday Sankar Nair of the University of Alabama in Huntsville is in Western Australia where he's investigating the fence phenomenon. Thanks for joining us, Professor. You're welcome. I'm looking at a photo that's in your research paper, and it was taken of the fence from an airplane, and the image is really dramatic. They're right down the fence line on the left side. It's very dark, and there are clouds over the field. And then on the right side of the fence, there's not a single cloud. That's the farmland. Why is that? We believe what's happening is that, like you mentioned, it's really uh, it's darker on one side where there is native vegetation, and uh, it absorbs more solar radiation that comes down to the ground, which means that it will put more heat into the atmosphere. And heat transferred from the ground to the atmosphere is one of the essential ingredients. And uh, That's the reason why you're seeing more clouds on the darker native vegetation side. And the farm side is lighter in color, so it's not absorbing the radiation. It's just bouncing back into into the atmosphere. It's not absorbing as much. It is actually absorbing the radiation, but it's slightly less than what's being absorbed on the other side. 
So it's not the fence. It's what we do with the land that can affect the weather. Yes. What's happening here is the fence is a barrier that demarcates between these two areas. And, uh, you know, you can see that from the base. So, Dr. Nair, are you seeing this effect uh, anyplace else on the planet? Yes. We have been researching deforestation in Costa Rica. And uh, what we found out was that in upwind locations of mountains, when you deforest, the air going up into the mountains are more dry and more warm. And what this implies is that there is less water available for cloud forests, for example, in Mano Verde. And uh, another region where this might have an impact is, for example, Kilimanjaro, where there's been recent concerns about glaciers melting. And uh, this could also have an impact in such regions because when you deforest lowlands, the air going up the mountains are going to be altered, and it could be more dry and more warm. So the farmers around Mount Kilimanjaro could actually be um, leading to the shrinkage of, of the snow cover in the mountain. Yes, they could be contributing to the effects that are being seen in Kilimanjaro now. I'm wondering what the implications of your research would be here in the United States. You know, where farmers are being told to plant corn for ethanol from fence post to fence post. One of the interesting questions that the study raises is that when you clear more and more areas for farming, would you reach a point where you clear too much land that you're going to reduce your rainfall and you get to a point of diminishing returns? Dr. Naya, how is the weather there, by the way? It was actually really nice today. It was very warm. It's actually been cold for the last couple of days, and it has really warmed up today. Which side of the fence are you on? Actually, we are staying on the agricultural side, but we also have a site that's set up on the native vegetation area. So are there clouds over the agricultural side? Actually, today we found clouds that formed over the native vegetation area early in the morning, and it stayed that way for till about the afternoon. So clouds were preferentially forming over the uh, native vegetation area today in the morning. So it's uh, consistent with your uh, research? Yes. We saw what we were looking for today. So that was very good. Uday Shankar Nair is a research scientist in the Earth System Science Center at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He joined us from the Lake King area in southwest Australia. Dr. Nair, thanks a lot. Um, enjoy the weather. I definitely will. On October 4th, 1957, this sound marked a new era in space science and set off alarms in the United States. It was 50 years ago that the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1. It was the world's first artificial satellite. The tiny aluminum sphere with four whisker-like antennas sent the beep-beep-beep signals that were picked up by ham radio operators around the planet. Joining me to discuss Sputnik 1 is Rawald Sagdiev, Director Emeritus of the Soviet Institute for Space Research in Moscow. Professor Sagdiev, it's a real pleasure. I'm uh, happy to be part of your program. What does Sputnik mean? You mean the meaning of the word Sputnik in Russian language? Yes. Its literary translation is uh, travel companion. Hmm. 
What was the significance of Sputnik in your mind? It depends on what a particular person is doing. I'm a scientist, so I'm really impressed with a completely new horizon opened for scientists. It started with a possibility to study what's happening above atmosphere, then the moon, solar system, and uh, astronomers suddenly discovered that the, the sky, the universe, in a completely uh, new, different way. So, and uh, at the end, with all of these new discoveries, the, the basic uh, fundamental physics uh, was enriched tremendously. We responded by starting a space race. And I'm wondering, was the Soviet Union in the race, too? You know, I think, it, first of all, it was a missile race. And then when space spectaculars became so much influential, impressive, you know, for the rest of the world, then both countries suddenly found themselves in competition who would, be, who would provide more spectacular firework in space. I found it interesting that the rocket that was used to launch Sputnik, the R-7, yeah. is still being used by Russians today. Yeah, and uh, not only still being used, it's uh, absolutely best of what uh, Russia can offer in the uh, launching department, and uh, nobody could compete with that. Uh, the, the several times modified R-7 now is uh, called, the latest version is called uh, Soyuz 2. What about the Russian space program now? First of all, what happened, uh, the, the overall budget for space pro program uh, shrunk tremendously. I, if I would say 10 times, it would not be, you know, uh, overestimation. So, uh, much fewer launches. And... Uh, very few new uh, technological developments. And uh, uh, the second uh, thing which is happening, Russia is trying to sell whatever it uh, inherited from Soviets. Same uh, Soyuz rockets, descendants of R-7, uh, is one of the objects in trade also, and also some other launchers. So, Professor Sakdiev, how are you going to commemorate Sputnik 1? I will go back to Moscow for a few days, and there is a big conference uh, organized uh, by my former Institute of Space Research in Moscow. I served as a director for 15 years, and it would be a big international gathering, so we will see what we have learned uh, over the period of 50 years and uh, try to figure out what's going to happen in future. Well, Professor, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for your interest. Today, Roald Sagdiev is a distinguished professor of physics at the University of Maryland. Well, 50 years ago in 1957, WAMU produced the first Frisbee. Ford introduced the Edsel. The Cat in the Hat was published. Velcro was patented. The first bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken was sold. And while Sputnik was spinning the globe, this 45 was spinning to the top of the charts.
Well, it's that time of year again. The harvest season is winding down and people are gearing up for the winter, stocking their pantries with the last picks of the season, tomatoes, squash, carrots, and cobs of corn. The culinary challenge to make the fresh, locally grown summer produce lasts through the long, cold months ahead. Living on Earth producer Ian Gray has been watching this year's harvest. He's a member of a CSA, a community-supported agriculture, at Red Fire Farm, where every week he gets his share of the farm's bounty. Food writer Kathy Gunst has been joining Ian as he collects his produce and showing him creative ways to cook it. In the final installment of our series, Ian and Kathy traveled to Granby, Massachusetts, where they met Red Fire Farm's Ryan Voiland. Could you tell us a little bit about Red Fire Farm? Um, how long has this land been farmed? And Yeah, I purchased this land in 2001, which makes this the seventh growing season that I've been uh, farming here on this land. I mean, I can't help but notice that this is a fairly suburban neighborhood, and here you have this sort of bucolic rural farm next to... House, house, house. Yeah. You, have you really saved a big track of land, I would think? That's true. I think the situation with the land here is typical of much of New England and that we have uh, suburbanization encroaching from all directions. And farmland is the easiest land to develop for developers who want to build houses. You know, the, usually farmland is well-drained, so it's easy to put in a septic system. And I think it's really a tragedy and pretty short-sighted for our planners that, that we allow all our good farmland to get carved up. So now that you're winding down the seventh growing season, how is it going? Has the CSA, I mean, are you are you on target? So yeah, I mean, so I've been here for the seven years. I've been pretty aggressively looking to increase the business and, and really get this this farm to a level where I can make a living at it in, in a financial sense. It probably takes me close to $100,000 of investment in a given growing season and buying supplies, buying seeds, you know, getting the tractors repaired, mm -hmm. all that stuff up in the spring before we get a single cent of revenue um, from sales of produce. So that's a pretty big risk for a farmer to take every year. And the CSA commitments really help me feel more confident in taking that risk. Tell us again how many families you're feeding through the CSA. Um, the CSA is, uh, we sell about 500 shares um, some of those shares go to a family, some are split between, you know, people use them in different ways. And 500 the, families is really impressive. It's quite a bit of food. <laughs> it's definitely quite a bit of food. So I guess now what we're going to do is we'll, we'll jump in your kitchen, if you don't mind. Yeah, we're here uh, at the farmhouse where much of the farm crew lives, including myself. And uh, we're going to let you use the kitchen and cook, cook something up with the produce that we collected. <laughs> All right, now to work, right? To work. I mean, this is just a joy because these are such gorgeous vegetables. What I've discovered is that you can make a fabulous sauce, in this case a tomato sauce, using all his onions and garlic and all the herbs from the garden, and you can roast it at a really high temperature. There's no peeling, there's no seeding, no fuss, no mess. We're going to take all these different tomatoes. We have the brandywine, the Germans, the yellows, the green stripe, and we're just going to chop them up. We're going to take the core out, and 
and you want to just chop the tomatoes up into, I don't know, one inch pieces. But again, it doesn't matter because the high heat's going to break it down. I got a big roasting pan. Anything you've got, you can use oven proof skillets. The other great thing about the sauce is you can make this with three tomatoes. You could just make up a bunch of sauce. Just just overnight, if you just want to make a sauce for the night, if you want exactly. to make it for, for later you in the can, week or yeah, something. Yeah, and you can just pop it into a bowl and keep it for a few days in the refrigerator, or you can stick it into a plastic bag and put it in your freezer. So I'm looking at a lot of these tomatoes we picked are actually kind of cracked and, and a little bit gnarled on the top, and they're you know black and bruised a little bit. They're not the best tomatoes from the field. But when you cut the tomato open, look at the inside. I mean, it's perfect. It's juicy. It's The flesh is just gorgeous. So don't worry. Looks can be deceptive. We've got our tomatoes finished up here, and so you're going to start in on yeah, some so onions. I, I think like. we have about, oh, I'd say about eight pounds of tomatoes in there. And now I'm just going to take an onion, and again, just coarsely chop. It doesn't have to be precise. Okay. And we're going to add onion and garlic and some fresh herbs. I'm just going to sprinkle the onions on top of the tomatoes. We're going to drizzle it with a little bit of olive oil here. Makes sense. And decent olive oil would really pay off here. We just want to lightly coat it, maybe about a quarter of a cup. Again, depends on how much sauce you're making. Some salt and pepper, and then we picked a beautiful head of basil. We'll add some of that chopped up. A little salt and pepper, give it a stir. It looks like gazpacho. Look at this, it's a beautiful tomato salad or a soup at this point. We're going to pop that into our 450 degree oven and we're not going to touch it. All right, Ian, it has been about an hour and 10 minutes and our sauce has thickened up just a bit. And the smells are just flying out of this oven. So oh, we're going to take this out of the oven and we have got roasted tomato sauce. Let's turn that oven off. And what we're going to do is we're going to taste it for seasoning. We're going to adjust with salt or pepper. You could add some chili flakes or Tabasco sauce to give it a little bit of a kick. And we're going to let it cool. Great. Well, I can't wait to put this away and then forget about it for a while. And then, you know, you can have when... a little tonight, but I mean, really, <laughs> the real treat of this is that you haven't spent an entire weekend canning, but you still have all the flavors of the harvest waiting for you all winter long. Food writer Kathy Gunt's latest book is Stonewall Kitchen Favorites. To get the recipe for quick roasted tomato sauce, check out our website, LOE.org. Our local farm cooking segment was produced by Ian Gray. Just ahead, will petroleum companies put a damper on Bird's Party Central in Alaska's North Slope? First, this note on emerging science from Amy Fish. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's what the Book of Common Prayer says about life on Earth. Now scientists say this same message may be a hint to life in outer space. Scientists from Russia, Germany, and Australia have discovered the surprisingly lifelike qualities of an inorganic substance called plasma dust. As the name suggests, the dust is found in plasma, a fourth state of matter so super hot, its atoms have broken apart. Plasmas are found in stars in outer space. The researchers say that the solid, electrically charged particles of plasma dust seem to act a lot like DNA, 
a building block of life here on Earth. In cytoplasma, the dust can form corkscrew structures, similar to a DNA double helix. And just like DNA, the dust structures can replicate. They divide to make two copies of the original. They can even evolve. It's sort of an inorganic version of survival of the fittest. The strongest shapes take in surrounding dust particles and reproduce, while the weaker ones die off. Until now, researchers have looked for extraterrestrial life based only on organic carbon compounds. But this lifelike dust contains no carbon. So there may be life out there after all, just not as we know it. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Amy Fish. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Imagine a landscape of a place you love. Follow the forms and the contours in your eye's mind. Now, put yourself in the picture. To know a place, to truly know a place, is a way of making it our own. Writers Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwartney asked 45 authors to describe features of different landscapes. The definitions are part of a collection found in the book called Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. We've asked several writers to read from their entries. Today, Eva Salidas of Homer, Alaska, and her definition of boreal forest. Boreal forest. South of the treeless Arctic tundra, a forest shawl wraps 11% of the Earth's northern terrestrial surface. This circumpolar boreal forest is white spruce dominated, carpeted with lichens, moss, orchids, heaths, quilted with peat bogs, and cut by cold, silty rivers. In Crossing Open Ground, Barry Lopez describes one view of this landscape. A backdrop of hills, open country recovering from an old fire, dark islands of spruce in an ocean of Labrador tea, low-brush cranberry, fireweed, each species of leaf the invention of a different green, lime, moss, forest, jade. Boreal forces shape this forest, hot summers of endless daylight, frigid dark winters, spring floods, permafrost, cycles of insect infestation and fire that decimate vast acreages. Yet fauna thrive, red squirrel, mink, moose, bear, wolf, lynx, marten, red fox, vole, muskrat, beaver, grouse, ptarmigan, porcupine, caribou, snowshoe hare, salmon, shefish, whitefish, northern pike. And flora, spruce, tamarack, paper birch, quaking aspen, balsam poplar, blueberry, crowberry, labrador tea, willow, cranberry, saxifrage, prickly rose. Indigenous people to this day rely on an intimate knowledge of geography to subsist on these animals and plants. Some non-natives also pursue this intimate geographic knowledge of the boreal forest. 
For several years, the poet John Haynes homesteaded in the boreal forest south of Fairbanks, Alaska, hunting and trapping for subsistence, receiving the forest's spiritual and artistic sustenance. Of this time, Haynes wrote, I am living out a dream in these woods, old dreams of the far north. Eva Solidis is a writer, teacher, and marine biologist from Homer, Alaska. Her definition of boreal forest appears in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gordon. is also where you'll find Teshekpuk Lake. It's on the North Slope, 300 miles above the Arctic Circle, and it's famous for two things. One is oil, the other, birds. It's got a lot of both. Teshekpuk Lake lies in the National Petroleum Reserve, where it's estimated there are 2 billion barrels of oil buried beneath the freshwater lake in marshy wetlands. It's enough oil to fuel the U.S. economy for three months. As for birds, according to one expert, it's got a million of them. In the spring, when the frozen Arctic wetlands begin to thaw, things really heat up as migratory waterfowl turn to Shekpuk Lake into Party Central. So far, the area is protected and the petroleum off-limits to drilling, but the Bush administration wants to lease the lake to oil companies. The Bureau of Land Management, under federal court order, recently issued a report on drilling in the area, and the agency is now accepting public comments. Stan Center, executive director for Audubon, Alaska, and Anchorage, has visited Teshekpuk Lake many times. It's the center of enormous activity, and if you uh, are on the ground there in uh, mid to late June, you have all of these birds arriving from literally all around the world, and they're there for one purpose, and that is to uh, find a mate and nest and produce young and then get out of there again before things freeze up. So there's an enormous level of activity, geese in the air, waterfowl in the air, songbirds singing uh, primarily in flight because there are no trees for them to sit on top of to uh, do their singing. So they're flying up in the air and then fluttering, uh, we call it skylarking, uh, down to the ground, giving their songs all the way. The uh, pace is tremendous, and there is no night and day. It's 24 hours of sunlight, so the activity goes on around the clock. Some people are going to think, you know, there's oil, there's gas there, and there's birds. I'm getting my oil from the Middle East and Iraq, and it's troubled, and people are dying there. You know, on balance, I need my oil. And, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Okay, so we lose the birds. Um, Certainly people make that argument. And what I would point out is that we can do both within the National Petroleum Reserve. This is an area of... 23 million acres, bigger than the state of South Carolina. 87% of it is already open for leasing. A million and a half acres are under lease. There is active not only exploration but development, which will lead to production from those areas already under lease. And, And I'm not even addressing the rest of the petroleum reserve, which also has significant leasing. So we have an opportunity in this area to balance the need for energy and access to new oil and gas supplies with the opportunity to protect some areas that are especially important for wildlife. Have you ever seen bird behavior changed 
around the developments on the North Slope? Um, yes. We have observed a number of things about birds in relation to oil and gas activity. One of them is that the infrastructure associated with oil and gas activity and the human activity around there attracts predators. And in turn, that has a direct effect on the nesting populations of birds that use those same areas. So right now, you have an area north of Teshekpuk Lake that has relatively low densities of predators. You put an oil field infrastructure in there and landfills and trash and everything else that goes with all the human activity, suddenly you have an area in which predators are concentrated to the detriment of the uh, nesting bird population. That would be one example of the kind of impacts we see. There are others. But if they didn't go to Teshekpuk Lake or couldn't go to Teshekpuk Lake, where else would they go? Well, what we usually see is when birds are displaced out of a prime nesting area, it ultimately results in a smaller population. And so the this idea that if they're just pushed out of one place and that they have a chance to go somewhere else doesn't really hold water. The, uh, the geese, for example, that use uh, the area north of the lake for their annual molt, uh, which is to replace their feathers, they've been coming there for many, many hundreds or thousands of years. If they're not able to go there, they may just not uh, be returning at all in the future. Well, Mr. Center, thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. And this is what Teshekpuk Lake sounds like during the frenetic mating season. These birds were recorded by Garrett Vinn, a biologist who used to conduct bird population surveys for oil companies that hoped to drill in the area. Now he's in Ithaca, New York, with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology holds the Macaulay Library, which has a collection which is the largest in the world of natural history recordings. Over the last few years, we've been trying to find out just what parts of the collection need to be worked on. And the first thing that came to mind was Arctic Alaska, mainly because of the impending threats of both global warming and oil development that uh, are threatening that area. So you wanted to get these recordings while the recording was good. Absolutely. A lot of noise comes with oil development, and trying to record audio anywhere in the United States is, is a difficult thing to do with uh, anthropogenic noise, air traffic, car traffic, all that sort of thing. So getting into these areas before the oil companies did to uh, record some of these special places for the future. Well, let's listen to the red-throated loons. All right. This is a pair of red-throated loons on an Arctic pond. What they're doing here is often called the plesiosaur display, which is a sort of a territorial announcement and also helps to strengthen the pair bond between a male and female red-throated loon. These two particular birds were reacting to an invading red-throated loon who had landed on their pond, and they swim together with necks out, outstretched. They're beautiful birds, gray, uh, slender water birds with a a sort of necklace of darker markings and a big red throat patch. And they swim towards each other with necks extended, mouths wide open, rocking forward and back, uh, issuing these raucous calls. And these calls can be heard 
for miles on the tundra. And usually when you hear one pair go off, you'll hear them going off from many directions as other pairs respond. So this particular pair had taken off and were doing a courtship flight around their territory. And we snuck in next to the pond, set out our microphones and laid under some camouflage cloth and actually laid there in the wet, cold tundra for a few hours before the birds returned and then went off into this display. So it was an exciting night. Sounds absolutely miserable. (laughs) Well, it's a challenge, you know. You're in an amazingly beautiful wilderness, and you have a you have a goal, and you're you're out there trying to get get the best kind of audio that you can get, and so when it when it works out, it's it's all worth it. How is the area, the North Slope, different from when you were there serving for oil companies? Well, the thing that's the most shocking, the last time I was up on the Colville River Delta, which is a very important area for both wildlife and subsistence. Uh, we were surveying areas of the delta for birds. I went back in 2006, and already the oil companies had put a huge airstrip across the middle of the delta, a big drilling pad. The amount of infrastructure up there to pump oil is mind-blowing. When you fly over it, it's just a massive industrial zone, and it occurs overnight. It really does. As soon as an oil company gets a green light, it's not like it takes them 10 years to develop an area. It's done within a year or two, and that, that area, as far as wilderness goes, is pretty much lost forever. Well, I guess it was a good thing that the, uh, the oil companies are trying to do surveys of these bird populations. You were involved in that. Well, they're required by law to do these surveys. It's good to have people up there surveying that care about what they're surveying, but really it's just a formality that needs to take place before they can go in and uh, develop an area. Let's listen to another recording we have that you made. It's a semi-palmated sandpiper. Did I get that right? That's right. Ooh, that'll go right through you. (laughs) This is really a fascinating bird. When you first arrive in the Arctic, or when they first arrive in the Arctic, the Arctic ground is still covered in snow. There may be bare patches of grass here and there. And these males have flown all the way from northern coastal South America, and they're staking out their little claims on the Arctic tundra before it's even thawed out. Um, These birds are about the size of a sparrow to give us some perspective on how far these birds travel uh, relative to their size. It's really an amazing thing. As soon as they arrive, they begin these courtship flights uh, where the males will get up and they'll just hover up there in the air above you. Uh, giving this call incessantly for 10, 15 minutes before they may drop back down to earth or scoot off to chase off another male that's displaying nearby. It sounds like you like all the birds. Do you have a favorite? Um, I really love the yellow-billed loon as far as birds go up there. Uh, it's an amazingly beautiful bird and, and one who could be threatened in the near future. 80% of its population uh, in the United States occurs in the National Petroleum Reserve. Let's give a listen. So what are we hearing there? This is similar to the red-throated loon recording we heard earlier. This is a pair announcing its territory on a lake just south of Teshikbuk Lake in the Teshikbuk Lake Special Area. Towards the end of the recording there, you hear 
the yodel, which is the loudest of the yellow billed calls. And this big, robust loon, uh, it's a beautiful bird, black and white markings, black and white checkered back with an enormous yellow bill. It'll lean its neck forward and just belt out this uh, yodel call. And that call can be heard for miles on the tundra. And, and like the red-throated loons, other yellow builds from neighboring lakes will respond with uh, calls of their own. Can you do bird calls? Uh, not in public. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I won't ask you then. <laughs> Except maybe just one. I could. Uh, what could I do? No, I can't do any bird calls. Well, if you go to our webpage, LOE.org, you won't hear bird calls from Garrett Vinn of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, but you'll find a link where you can listen to recordings of the real thing from his most recent trip to Alaska. Next time on Living on Earth, at Boston's Fenway Park, you can buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. But in the future, the Sox hope locally grown organic produce and solar energy will also be a hit. We want to be on the uh, cutting edge uh, within professional sports to take the lead on this very important environmental and, and social issue. And we think there is a great opportunity not only to set the standard for sports facilities, but the standard for the country in uh, taking this under our wing. The Red Sox go green next week on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in and under Alaska's Glacier Bay National Park. Bernie Krause of WildSanctuary.com set his microphones above and below the water and mixed it all together for his CD, Whales, Wolves, and Eagles of Glacier Bay. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Alexandra Gutierrez and Mitra Taj. Jeff Turton is our technical director. This week, we say so long and good luck to our associate producer, Ian Gray, who combined his passion for the environment with a keen intellect and a creative curiosity. Ian, we'll miss you. Allison Lyrish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com.
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow, on the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.